Welcome back to Avery After Dark, your favorite place for all things spooky. I'm your host, Avery Ross. Today's episode is one of the creepiest stories I've ever heard. The unsolved murder mystery of Hotel Room 1046. I covered this case on TikTok yesterday, and I can only really fit so much in those videos. There are so many more details in this case I know you all would want to hear. I've also gotten a few comments asking why I don't elaborate more on the violent details surrounding the crimes on my TikTok videos, and that's because I don't want the videos to get removed. I'm not trying to hold out on anyone, and I do my best to give as many details as I can, but TikTok has some pretty strict community guidelines, and I try to follow those as best as I can. I've had a few videos taken down on there, and it's a whole ordeal. You have to appeal it, and sometimes the video gets reinstated on your account, but it's still docked against you, and thus you start to get warnings about your account being in jeopardy. That's why you may have noticed I phrase sensitive or violent details in these cases in the most PG way I can. I also do have younger viewers on there, and I'm really not a person who is super into the gory details of these cases. I believe you can cover cases in a way that is informative, but also tasteful, and that's where I like to reside. So here on the podcast, I have much more freedom, so let's get into today's mystery. It all started on Wednesday, January 2nd, 1935. Around 1.30 p.m., a man who identified himself as Roland T. Owen checked into the hotel president in Kansas City, Missouri. Staff noted he was in his 20s and was nicely dressed in a black coat. They also noticed a scar above his ear and noted he also had cauliflower ear. For those of you who don't know, because I didn't know until recently, Cauliflower ear is a deformity of the outer ear that can occur after injury to the area. It has a bumpy appearance, and it's most common in fighters and boxers. Roland said he was from Los Angeles and requested an interior room several floors up and was booked into room 1046. The hotel had exterior rooms facing the street and interior rooms facing a small courtyard, so for more privacy, someone would choose an interior room. A bellboy named Randolph Propst brought Roland up to his room. This was the 1930s, so bellboys accompanying guests to their rooms was pretty standard. Hotels usually had a full staff, including elevator operators, to tend to their guest needs. Nowadays, it's a bit different. Hotels will give you a cart with, like, a bum wheel for your luggage. They hand you your room key and are like, see ya. But back then, it was much more of an experience to stay at a hotel. The bellboy saw that Roland had no luggage, only seemed to have packed a toothbrush, toothpaste, and a comb. Later in the day, a hotel maid named Mary Saptic said Roland allowed her to clean up the room while he was in there, and noted how dark he kept it. He kept the lights off with only one dimly lit lamp on, and the shades were completely drawn. As she was leaving, Roland asked her to leave the door unlocked and mentioned that he had a friend coming to visit soon. Mary later said that he seemed either worried about something or afraid, and that he, quote, always wanted to kind of keep in the dark. At 4 p.m., she returned to drop off fresh towels and walked into the room to find Roland, lying on the bed, awake, still in the dark, completely dressed with the door unlocked. As she was leaving, she saw a note on the table that read, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. 
The next morning on January 3rd, Mary returned to clean the room at 10.30 a.m. per usual and saw the door had been locked from the outside, and she assumed that Roland had probably locked it as he left for the day. But she was startled to walk in to find him again, lying on the bed, awake in the dark. So this meant that someone had locked Roland in the room from the outside. Who would be locking Roland in his room? And for this guy to always just be sitting there alone waiting? What is going on here? Mary began cleaning up and recalled that during this, Roland answered a phone call and said, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. Roland kept repeating, No, I am not hungry. I just gotta say, I get being dedicated to your job, but I can't believe Mary kept going back into this room. I would have been out of there. See ya. This is weird and creepy, but I suppose Mary is a little bit braver than I. So at this point, Roland has mentioned this Don character, but no one has seen him. The only person they have seen is Roland himself. Again, coming to deliver towels to 1046 later in the day, Mary heard two men talking inside Roland's room and knocked on the door. A deep, rough voice Mary didn't recognize asked, who is it? Mary said she had fresh towels and the voice replied back, we don't need any, so she left. The following morning on January 4th at 7 a.m., the hotel's operator noted that the phone in Roland's room had been off the hook for a while. The operator could tell that it wasn't in use, just off the receiver for some time, so she told the hotel staff. Then, that bellboy, Randolph, was sent up to Roland's room. On the door dangled a do-not-disturb sign, but he knocked and heard a deep voice say, Come in. Turn on the lights. But the door was locked, so he kept knocking, but no one was getting up to let the bellboy in, so he yelled, Put the phone back on the hook, and left. Over an hour passes and the phone is still off the hook, so another bellboy named Harold Pike heads up to the room and enters with a master key. The room was completely dark and only using the light from the hallway he entered. The bellboy could make out that Roland was lying on the bed appearing to be asleep with a dark stain underneath him. The bellboy looked over to see the phone stand had been knocked over, so he stood it back up, put the phone back on the receiver, and left. At 10.30 a.m., the operator sees that the phone is back off the hook again. So the bellboy Randolph goes back up, opens the door, and walks into a terrifying scene. Roland was on his elbows and knees with his head in his hands within two feet of the door and was completely bloodied. Randolph turned on the light to see blood on the walls, all over the bed and in the bathroom. It was obvious that Roland had been viciously attacked and the bellboy was so scared he ran downstairs and the hotel called 911. Police and detectives arrived to find that Roland is somehow still alive, but his injuries were substantial, and he was having trouble speaking. He had been bound with a cord around his neck, wrists, and ankles. He had been hit repeatedly on his head, resulting in a skull fracture. He had also been stabbed in the chest multiple times. There was also bruising around his neck, indicative of strangulation. They asked him who else had been in the room with him, and he replied, nobody, and said that he fell against the bathtub. He was barely conscious and was taken to the hospital, where on January 5th, Owen died from his injuries. After examining him, doctors concluded that these injuries were sustained six to seven hours before he was found. 
meaning that all this went down before that bellhop's initial trip to his room that morning. So was it Roland who said, come in, turn on the lights, or was it possibly someone else in the room? Possibly the murderer? No weapon was found in the room, so the idea that Roland could have done this to himself was out of the question. Police start interviewing staff at the hotel and get word of this mysterious Don that the victim had mentioned, but they couldn't track him down. The room was swept for evidence, and police couldn't find a single piece of clothing of Roland's nor any of the hotel's amenities like shampoo or towels. They were all missing. Whoever did this seemed to be thorough, as there was little to no evidence found, and no one was ever spotted leaving or in Roland's room. Police only found what they assumed to be female fingerprints on the room's telephone. They believed this as the fingerprints were much smaller than that of a standard male fingerprint. These fingerprints were also tested against female staff at the hotel, and it didn't match any of them. Another guest staying at the hotel down the hall from Roland was interviewed, and she stated she heard yelling from both male and female voices coming from Roland's room during his stay. The hotel's elevator operator, Charles Blocker, was interviewed by police, and he said the night of the murder, he brought a woman up to the 10th floor. She told him that she was supposed to meet a man in room 1026, but many think she may have gotten it confused and was actually looking for 1046, Roland's room. Charles said that he also saw this woman with a man who wasn't Roland that evening. Was this perhaps Don? This could explain the reported male and female voices heard coming from Roland's room, but neither the woman nor the man she was seen with were ever identified. So, when Roland checked in, he mentioned he was from Los Angeles, so police reach out to LAPD for any records on Roland T. Owen. LAPD replied back that they had no record of anyone with that name, and detectives realized that Roland T. Owen never existed. And now, just a quick word from today's sponsors. So after police find out their victim was using an alias, the mystery surrounding his murder only intensified. Who was this man hiding behind this fake name? His sketch of his description and details on the case went out in newspapers, and the story spread. His body was being placed for a viewing at a local memorial home in hopes that someone would recognize this man. They tried to match him with missing person cases in Kansas City, but weren't finding a match. Eventually, in the Kansas City Journal, they announced that this man's burial would be in a potter's field. A potter's field, also known as a pauper's grave, is a place for the burial of unidentified and unclaimed people. Shortly after this announcement, an anonymous call came in from an unidentified male stating that he would send the money for a proper memorial for Roland. The caller said, don't bury him in a pauper's grave. I want you to bury him in Memorial Park Cemetery. Then he will be near my sister. I'll send funds to cover the funeral expenses. The caller went on to say that Owen had jilted a lover and the night he was murdered, he, that woman, and Don had a little meeting in that hotel room. He ended the call saying cheaters usually get what's coming to them. And on March 23rd, that money arrived at the memorial home bundled in a newspaper. The sender was anonymous. Another unidentified person arranged flowers for the memorial with a note that read, Love Forever, Louise. 
So we have these calls coming in, accusations of adultery, we have a note from Louise, but without the real name of the victim, police had their hands tied. A year later in 1936, a woman named Ruby Ogletree from Birmingham, Alabama, saw an American Weekly article on this case and identified Roland T. Owen as her son, actually named Artemis Ogletree. Ruby said her son, Artemis, had left Birmingham in 1934 and was only 17 years old. Police spoke with her and eventually believed her. She had details about the prominent scar on his head and said that he got it from an accident with hot grease as a child. But this identification only raised more questions, as Ruby told police that she had received three letters within the past year from her son. All of these letters were sent and delivered after her son's death. Ruby said the correspondence was typed and the slang and wording used seemed unfamiliar and unlike her son. And one more thing, Ruby said Artemis didn't know how to type, so this confused her. She also said that in August 1935, she received a call from an unidentified man from Memphis, Tennessee. He told her that Artemis was in Egypt and unable to write her because he lost his thumb in a fight. The caller said Artemis saved his life in that fight. Ruby said the caller spoke wildly, but seemed to know a lot of information and private details about her son. I imagine this was devastating for a mother. Not only do you find out your son is dead, but someone else has been sending you letters pretending to be him, and people are calling you, telling you that your son is actually alive. What a nightmare for Ruby. It was later confirmed by a staff member at the St. Regis Hotel in Kansas City that Roland, a.k.a. Artemis, had checked into their hotel prior to his death with an unidentified man. Many believe this man was most likely the mysterious Don character. So there are all these strange puzzle pieces that police are collecting after Artemis' death. But nothing seems to fit together, and eventually the case goes cold. That was until 2003. A researcher named Dr. John Horner studied and covered this case extensively. He published an article about the story with the Kansas City Public Library, and one day, he received a call. The unidentified caller was from out of state and said that while they were cleaning out a recently deceased relative's belongings, they found a box with tons of newspaper clippings on this case. The caller also stated that there was another piece of evidence in the box, an item mentioned in the articles. Sadly, this caller was never identified, never called back, and no one knows what that item was. The mysterious Don was never identified either. Some believe that he alone murdered Artemis, but it remains a mystery of who Don was to Artemis. A friend, a lover, a co-worker, or was it short for Donna? We do have that elevator operator stating that he saw a woman on the 10th floor the night Artemis was murdered. Another popular theory in this case is that this was the work of the mafia. Don is a notorious title for a mob boss or someone in the mafia. And in the 1930s, the mafia was uh, pretty prolific. So this could very well be possible. This case remains unsolved, and at this point, the person or persons who murdered Artemis are most likely deceased. But the bizarre behavior and calls after Artemis' death are just as bizarre as his behavior leading up to it. I mean, think about yourself checking into a hotel with no belongings, just to sit there in the dark all day. 
What would make someone behave like that? Fear. Like Mary, the hotel's maid mentioned, he seemed worried or afraid. It's almost like he was ordered there and stayed obedient out of fear, and the fact that he wouldn't give up the name of the person who attacked him confirms that for me. Whoever was responsible or involved obviously felt compelled to maybe pay for his burial, which to me implies a personal relationship. And for some reason, someone felt the need to continue writing letters and communicating with his mom, Ruby, impersonating her dead son. Which again is so awful and bizarre and implies that they obviously knew him fairly well if they knew Ruby and were able to reach out to her. I read about this case a few months ago, and there's something about it that's so undeniably eerie. It's just mystery on top of mystery. I do feel like that person who called in 2003 was onto something. For them to seek out this researcher personally, keep in mind that this was 2003. The internet wasn't what it was today. And that call came from another state, so it took a lot of effort for that caller to reach out. The fact that it never went anywhere makes me wonder if another family member got wind that the caller was sharing sensitive information about their relative and put a stop to it. I know I'll be thinking about this case for the rest of the day, and from the response I've gotten from you all, y'all are just as puzzled as I am. Make sure you are following along with Avery After Dark on all the social media channels, I've linked all those accounts below, so go give them a follow. That way you can stay up to date. And feel free to share this podcast and Avery After Dark with your mystery-loving friends and family. I look forward to next episode, and I hope you all have a great week. I appreciate you all so much. Bye, guys.